Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. This is not going to be your typical opening message, but I would like to sincerely thank each and every one of you that sent your condolences for my 14-year-old dog, Sebastian. For those that don't know, I had to make the hardest decision of my life and have him put down yesterday. He's, he was 14, and um, he was having a lot of seizures out of nowhere. Anyway, he has crossed the Rainbow Bridge, and he returned to the ashes for the final time. He gets to come home in a few days. For those that haven't been to the Back to Ashes channel and you would like to learn how to become a member or buy me a coffee as a special thank you, those links are found down below. If you are enjoying what you are hearing or haven't done so already, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help the channel out, but it'll remind you of every time I upload a video. And as usual, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 17. Right after this intro, there will be an ad played. I'll read the first case, there will be an ad played. And after that, there will be no more ads within this video. Disclaimer. If any of these cases contain more vulgar language than usual, I will be using the fluff words. Enjoy. The Disappearance of Belinda Williams Disappearance The reports surrounding Belinda Williams' disappearance differ, depending on the source. Her father and sister say they last saw her in Vancouver, British Columbia at some point in July 1976, while other sources say her family last came into contact with her in 77. The official date listed by the RCMP states that Belinda was last seen on July 1, 1976. Despite going missing in the 1970s, Belinda wasn't reported missing to the Statlium Tribal Police in Mount Curry, British Columbia until February 2004. The case has subsequently been handed over to the RCMP. Investigation Very little has been publicly released regarding the investigation into Belinda's disappearance. However, the authorities have shared that the 24-year-old was last seen in Mission, British Columbia. Details Belindia Gertrude Williams was last seen on July 1, 1976, in Mission, British Columbia, Canada. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old stood between 5'1 and 5'2 and weighed 117 pounds. She had black hair and brown eyes and a tattoo of the letter B on the webbing of her right hand. Other distinguishing features include a scar below one of her eyes and on her right arm, as well as a crooked right little finger. Case Contact Information Belinda's case is currently classified as a missing persons investigation. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Mission Detachment of RCMP at 604-826-7161. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at one 800 222-8477. The Disappearance of Allie Lowitzer Early Life Alexandria, or Allie Lowitzer, was born on February 3, 1994, to parents Joanne and John Lowitzer, the youngest of two children. She was a loyal and caring young girl who grew up in the small town of Spring, Texas, just north of Houston. Allie was a member of a close-knit family. She and her brother Mason were both very loving toward each other, despite engaging in sibling rivalry. Her parents were both workers at shipping logistics companies. In 2008, they separated, with the kids living with her mother. While Allie still held anger toward her father about the separation, John was still a staple in the kids' life. Allie was a creative and energetic child with interests in reading and art, the latter of which she was hoping to pursue during college. 
She sang in her school choir, was a Girl Scout while she was younger, and had been a member of a softball team during her early teen years. A sophomore at Spring High School, Allie was very social with a large group of friends whom she would frequently call and text. On average, her phone records would show around 3,000 texts a month. She also had a budding relationship with a fellow classmate named DJ. Lead up to disappearance. April 26, 2010 started out as a regular day in the Lowitzer household, with Allie leaving the house at around 7 a.m. to catch the school bus. At 2.30 p.m., she was riding the school bus home when she called her mother to let her know she'd forgotten her house key. Her mother assured her the door would have been unlocked, as Mason had not left for the day. Allie then asked if she could walk to the park at the local burger barn about a quarter mile away to pick up her paycheck and inquire about picking up a shift that night. Her mother initially denied her request as Allie had never walked to work before and there was no sidewalk along the road, but after a brief argument, she relented. Disappearance Joanne returned home from work at 5.30 p.m. to find Allie was not home. Believing Allie had managed to pick up a shift and had just forgotten to tell her, she didn't think much of it and simply texted her daughter to ask her when she needed to be picked up. At 9 o'clock p.m., Joanne had still not received a response to her text, so she drove to the burger barn, only to find the restaurant was closed. Feeling something was wrong, she called John, who told her not to worry, believing Allie was probably at a friend's house and had forgotten to call them. However, upon contacting those Allie was close to, it became apparent she was not with her friends. Joanne then drove to DJ's house, where she learned he, too, had not received answers to his own calls and texts to Allie. After speaking with him, Joanne proceeded to drive around the neighborhood, but could find no sign of her daughter. At 11 p.m., Joanne called the police to report her daughter as missing. The Search Around midnight, a deputy arrived at Joanne's house, as did John. After a search and questioning Joanne and John, the deputy said there was no evidence of foul play, and Allie would probably return home in the morning. Much to her parents' dismay, they were told to contact police in the morning with an update. Throughout the night, Mason and his friends searched the neighborhood for his sister, while Joanne stayed up hoping her daughter would return home. At 5 a.m., she phoned John to let him know Allie was still missing. 9 a.m. rolled around and Joanne once again called the police, only to be told Allie was probably a runaway, a theory the family disputed given Allie didn't have a history of doing so. She had also left behind her makeup, money, and phone charger. Given her status as a runaway, police didn't open a missing persons investigation into Allie's case, nor did they issue an Amber Alert, so the family started their own investigation. John phoned the school bus company and was able to view security video from the day before. It showed Allie getting on the bus in the morning and off later that afternoon. Two boys had gotten off the bus with her at the stop on Low Ridge Road, and they claimed she walked away in the opposite direction, toward the burger barn. John then went to the burger barn to speak with Allie's manager, who said Allie hadn't been at the restaurant at the night before. This was cooperated by security footage from a nearby gas station, which failed to show Allie in the area. During their search, Allie's parents made numerous calls to their daughter with no response. Joanne remembered their cell phone provider had a GPS tool that would allow them to pinpoint where Allie's phone was. However, it appears Allie's phone either lost power or was turned off near the edge of the neighborhood and could not be pinged any further. Joanne also looked through Allie's phone records from the day she went missing and saw her daughter had texted a friend named Jay at around 2.50 p.m., asking him to come by the house and hang out. He had texted her back and let her know he was unable to and was later cleared by police of any involvement in the case.
While looking into Allie's phone records, her family learned their phone provider was unable to offer them the contents of her messages from the days leading up to her disappearance. However, they were able to obtain the dates, times, and numbers, the latter of which were all called. On May 3, 2010, the family reapproached police with the information they had gathered. But Allie's status was only changed from runaway to endangered runaway. Investigators looked through her old journals, which showed mentions of wanting to run away. When pressed about this, her family once again disputed the theory, saying Allie's writings did not reflect her current feelings. Not long after, leads stopped coming into the family. Each night, Joanne would text her daughter, hoping for a response. None ever came. Hoping to reignite the investigation, the Lowitzers enlisted the help of Laura Recovery Center, which helps to find missing and abducted children. They helped create flyers, conducted door-to-door -door interviews, and organized ground searches using scent dogs, ATVs, searches on horseback, and volunteers. During one of the searches, the dogs were able to pick up on Allie's scent. However, the team were unable to determine if it was a fresh track or one that had been there for a long time. The searches caught the attention of local media, who picked up the story. Allie's family appeared on the news, appealing for their daughter to come back home. And they helped to raise a $25,000 reward for any information leading to the girls' return home. In late May 2010, the case was transferred to homicide detectives at the Harris County Sheriff's Office in the hopes of generating more leads. Similarly to before, the family filled in investigators on what they had already discovered. The investigators began their investigation by looking at the Lowitzer family, interviewing them, and, in particular, subjecting John and Mason to polygraph tests. While both passed, only John had been cleared on any involvement in Allie's disappearance. Allie's family created a Facebook page to help bring in new tips and launched the hashtag Hope for Allie campaign. In the months that followed, the ground searches were called off and the news stories surrounding the case stopped, leading to the case going cold. In 2012, a private investigator hired by the Lowitzer family brought up the idea that convicted killer Brandon Laverne might be involved in Allie's disappearance. Laverne was accused of killing two women, Mickey Shunick and Lisa Pate, in Louisiana, and his white truck had been seen in the spring area around the time Allie went missing. A witness had called in, saying he'd seen a young girl talking to someone in a similar truck near the burger barn. He'd managed to grab a few numbers off the license plate, which were matched to Laverne. Laverne also had ties to the spring area via his family, and his burnt-out truck had been discovered 50 miles out of town. Police questioned him in regards to Allie's disappearance, but he was able to provide an alibi that was verified through his former employer. To further help them bring in new leads, the Lowitzers hired a second private investigator, Amber Kamek, who believed Allie could have been the victim of human trafficking and thus could be anywhere in the United States. This theory was further pushed forward in October of 2012 when Joanne received a call from a woman in Columbus, Ohio. The woman said she had seen Allie's missing person website and claimed she looked similar to a girl she'd seen at a local church function for the homeless. The girl had been quiet, which made the woman think she was being forced to not make eye contact with others. Given drugs and sex trafficking are rampant in the Columbus area, Amber traveled to the city to work undercover with police, where she visited several crack houses and brothels. Four weeks in, she came in contact with an undercover cop who was unaware of her search. He told Amber that he'd seen Allie, who was going by her new nickname, Alley Cat. While he was aware she was from Texas, he didn't know she was a missing person. In November of 2012, Amber was put in contact with a police informant named Amy who immediately recognized Allie when shown a picture. She recalled the scar on the missing girl's forehead and called her by the Alley Cat nickname. 
In exchange for money, Amy brought Amber to the house Allie was believed to have been held. However, while a girl resembling Allie was seen, Amber had no way of accessing her. Following the encounter, Amber flew back to Texas to update the Lowitzers. In December 2012, Allie's parents flew to Columbus, hoping to reunite with their daughter. They were introduced to Amy, and a plan was hatched to bring Allie back home with the help of local police. The plan was executed in January 2013. Amber entered the house wearing a wire with a SWAT team nearby. When police entered, several arrests were made and eight girls were saved, but Allie was nowhere to be seen. Given her absence, it's believed her captors might have been tipped off beforehand about the raid. Theories Number 1. Police initially held the belief Allie is a runaway and her case is still classified as such. This is due in part to the writings in her journal and the lack of evidence pointing toward an abduction. However, her family adamantly denies this given Allie had no history of running away and had left behind important possessions. Number 2. Allie's family believes she was abducted by a stranger. However, they have no evidence pointing toward if she's alive and being held against her will or if she is currently deceased. This theory is supported by a similar incident that occurred before Allie's disappearance. A girl from the area had been the victim of an attempted abduction, having been forced into a car by an unknown male. She was able to escape by biting her abductor and running from the car. Number 3. Amber Kamek believes Allie to be the victim of human trafficking, giving the reported sightings in Ohio. However, police in Texas doubt this, given that Allie's fingerprints have yet to match and already uploaded to their databases. They believe that if Allie was being trafficked, then she would have had a run-in with the law by this point. Aftermath As of publishing, a police investigation is at a standstill with Allie's family having voiced their frustration with how the case was being handled. Mason has since moved to Seattle, Washington. Joanne still lives in the same house in case Allie returns home. Her daughter's room remains as it was on the day of her disappearance. Joanne has dedicated herself to finding her daughter. A few years after Allie's disappearance, she petitioned for a nationally recognized day of missing persons. As a result, Houston's Missing Persons Day occurs annually on February 3rd, while the statewide day is recognized on April 26th. Case Contact Information Alexandria Lowitzer went missing from Spring, Texas on April 26, 2010. She was 16 years old and was last seen wearing a white shirt, a gray hooded sweater, black and white checkered skinny jeans, black sneakers, and a multi-colored backpack with dark stripes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 2 and 145 pounds. She has naturally brown hair that had been dyed red and blue eyes, with a chicken pox scar on her forehead and pink braces on her teeth. Currently, her case is classified as endangered missing. If alive, she would be 24 years old. If you have any information regarding the case, you can contact the Harris County Sheriff's Office at 713-274-9100. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. The Disappearance of Autumn Shaganash Early Life Autumn Shaganash of Constance Lake First Nation was born in 1996. She always wanted to spend time with friends and talk to her family, and she was known for her sense of humor and frequent use of social media. Autumn was also known to frequent Barrie, Ontario's Native Friendship Center. At the time of her disappearance, Autumn was living with her sister, Lillianne Moore, in Barry's Allendale neighborhood. Despite no longer living at home, she kept in regular contact with her mother, Esther, via Facebook Messenger. The 26-year-old was struggling with depression and anxiety and had begun to abuse alcohol, but was receiving treatment. Disappearance Autumn left her sister's house near Burton Avenue and Frank's Way, at 9 p.m. on June 9, 2023. She told Lillianne that she'd be back later, and surveillance footage showed her walk past a nearby convenience store, cross the road, and meet an unknown individual. Later that night, Autumn messaged her cousins to say she was heading to a bar. However, she didn't specify which one or with whom. At 11 p.m., she texted Lillianne and told her she'd be staying out late and planned to return home the next day. At between 9.30 and 9.45 a.m. the next morning, her sister received a text from her autumn asking to be picked up. Despite responding just three minutes later, none of Lillianne's messages went through, leading her to assume autumn's cell phone had died and needed to be charged. Surveillance footage was later found time-stamped 10 a.m. on June 10, 2023, but showed a 26-year-old walking in Sunnydale Park area with an unknown man during the walk to end ALS. She was carrying a pair of skis. Two days later, without any contact from Autumn, a family member called the Barry Police Service to report her missing. There has been no activity on her bank account or phone since the last time she contacted Lillianne investigation. Autumn's family was able to gain access to her laptop and sift through her social media accounts. She appears to have been messaging someone early on June 10, 2023, around the same time she texted her sister to pick her up. While she didn't give this unnamed individual the house number or address, she did provide the street name. The family were also able to access Autumn's Snapchat account and save several messages from the night prior. They reportedly showed an unknown male in the interior of a house. A street name was also visible in some of the images. The Barry Police Service is in charge of the investigation into Autumn's disappearance. Autumn's family have shared their concerns that she was possibly forced into human trafficking, something investigators haven't fully discounted. The authorities have conducted ground searches with canines, followed up on leads, and put the case in national databases. However, Autumn's family has criticized how they're handling the case. In particular, while they perceive to be a lack of urgency after they reported the 26-year-old missing. To supplement what they feel has been a lackluster investigation, they have put up posters, looked into tips themselves, and organized their own searches. They've also raised money to hire a private investigator. Details Autumn Hope Shaganash was last seen in the Sunnydale Park area of Barrie, Ontario, on June 10, 2023. The 26-year-old was in the company of an unknown male and was seen carrying a pair of skis. The pair were in the area around the same time as the walk to end ALS, and the Barry Police Service is asking anyone who attended to look through their photos and videos and to contact them if they spot anything suspicious. 
Autumn is described as having a medium build, standing at 5'3 and weighing 130 pounds. She has brown eyes and straight black hair and was last seen wearing a black hoodie and jacket, either beige leggings or a pair of shorts, sources vary, and slip-on puma sandals. She also had in her nose and septum piercings. The missing woman is known to suffer from anxiety and depression, as well as asthma. She's prescribed medication for these conditions, which she hasn't had access to since she went missing. Case Contact Information Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact the Barry Police Service Station at 705-725-7025. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Sunshine Wood Early Life Sunshine Wood was born on April 6, 1987, raised by her father Anthony her grandfather, and her great-grandfather from the age of 10. She grew up on the Mantosiri Cree Nation in northern Manitoba with her two older brothers and two younger sisters. She also spent six months in foster care for undisclosed reasons. Adored by her family, especially her brothers, Sunshine lived a relatively normal life. She was bubbly and outgoing with a tendency to make friends rather easily. She also loved to laugh and didn't partake in the negative behaviors some of the other teenagers in her community did. Hoping to become a nurse, Sunshine moved to Winnipeg when she was 16 and enrolled at Gordon Bell High School. It was a major change moving from a remote community of just a few hundred people to a large metropolitan area. She initially stayed with her uncle, but later moved in with a woman named Priscilla. Anthony wasn't sure how Sunshine met the woman, as she didn't disclose this information in their daily phone calls. Sunshine loved the social aspect of being in a big city and was known for her street smarts. However, Anthony began to notice a difference in his daughter. She started skipping school, and while she'd not previously touched alcohol, began drinking regularly. Concerned for her well-being, Anthony tried to convince Sunshine to move back home, but he was unsuccessful. Disappearance On the morning of February 20, 2004, Anthony called his daughter to confirm their plans for the following day. He also stopped by to give her some money. Sunshine was last seen that night in front of the former St. Regis Hotel at 285 Smith Street near Portage Avenue. She and a group of friends had decided to spend the night downtown, and they spent time at the hotel's bar. The last known surveillance images of Sunshine were timestamped at 11.45 p.m. that night. In them, she's seen holding the door open in the lobby for two unknown males before going outside to have a cigarette. What happened after? That is the unknown. While some sources say Anthony learned of Sunshine's disappearance the following day, it's since been clarified that he wasn't made aware until February 26th. He subsequently reported his daughter missing to the Winnipeg Police Service. Investigation Sunshine's case hardly received media attention, despite the Winnipeg Police Service saying her disappearance was out of character. To help get the word out, Child Find Manitoba teamed up with the Wood family to put up posters and collect tips from the police. Investigators interviewed the man in the surveillance footage from the St. Regis Hotel and have since stated that they don't believe him to have any connection to the case. In 2009, a tip was called in that claimed Sunshine was alive and well outside of Manitoba. However, this information was never confirmed. Project Devote, a joint RCMP Winnipeg Police Service task force dedicated to looking into the cases of Manitoba's missing and murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, or MMIWG, took over the investigation in 2012. 
It ran for eight years, with the latter starting its own model in 2020 that has community-based focus, incorporating grassroots organizations. No updates were provided as to how this would impact the investigation into Sunshine's disappearance. Details Sunshine April Hilda, Sunny Wood went missing from the St. Regis Hotel in downtown Winnipeg, Manitoba on the evening of February 20, 2004. She was just 16 years old at the time. Sunshine is described as having a heavy build, standing between 5'6 and 5'7 and weighing 220 pounds. She had shoulder-length, straight, dark brown or black hair and brown eyes and was last seen wearing a dark gray Exco sweatshirt, blue jeans, and black boots. Sunshine has a number of distinguishable features, including the following tattoos. SW on her left hand, the letter L on her left index finger, Sunny on her right forearm, the letter B on her left thumb, Destiny and a heart on her right forearm, and two on her left middle finger. She also has numerous cigarette burn marks on her left forearm. Case Contact Information While characterized as an ongoing missing persons case, Sunshine's disappearance is being investigated as a homicide. Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact the Winnipeg Police Service at either 204-986-6250 or 204-986-6060. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 204-786-8477 or 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Misty Potts Early Life Misty Potts was born in Edmonton, Alberta in 1977 and grew up on the Alexis Nakoda Sioux First Nation, about 70 kilometers away. Her family, including brothers Zachary and Percy Jr. and sister Eva, were raised very traditional, with their father being a hunter and their mother a gatherer. Their father, in particular, made sure the girls knew their worth. According to Eva, Misty was fun, kind, smart, and selfless, with a compassionate heart. She loved her community and was committed to sharing and preserving her culture. After graduating from Onaway High School, Misty left home to attend the University of Manitoba. She received her Bachelor of Arts in 2002, and eight years later earned her Master's in Environmental Studies. Her thesis discussed the implications of the oil and gas industry on Canada's indigenous population. Around this time, Misty helped with the documentary film Awakening Spirit, which looked at how industrialization impacts First Nations communities. This was followed by a teaching stint at Yellow Tribal College in Edmonton and work on a number of other environmental-related projects. Misty's life was going well, with her giving birth to a son named Gabriel and moving back to Manitoba. She'd also planned to pursue her Ph.D. part-time at Athabasca University in Alberta. Unfortunately, in 2011, Zachary died by suicide, an event that was followed by Misty and her husband separating. The latter got custody of their son. All of this led Misty to begin using marijuana, which itself turned into prescription drug and methamphetamine use. Knowing she needed to separate herself from the situation, she moved back home to Alberta and with the support of her mother and Eva, began seeking help for her substance abuse issues. Despite this, her sister believes she was spending time with other drug users. Disappearance the last time anyone from Misty's immediate family spoke to or saw her was on February 24, 2015. Along with talking to Eva, she called Gabriel and visited the convenience store with her mother, with whom she was staying. While at the store, she ran it to some friends. Misty was last active on Facebook on March 7, 2015, when she sent a message to her niece. 
Approximately one week later, on either the 13th, 14th, or 16th of March, sources vary. The 37-year-old was last seen standing alongside the road at the intersection of Highways 43 and 765. The location was only a short distance from her mother's house. After two weeks of no contact, her family officially reported Misty missing to the RCMP on March 30, 2015. While she would disappear for a week or two at a time, it was uncommon for them to not receive a phone call or message on social media. Investigation The Mayor Thorpe Detachment of the RCMP is currently handling the case. Eva was quick to criticize investigators, claiming they didn't take the case seriously during the first two weeks due to Misty's history with illicit substances. To get the case in the public eye, Eva launched her own ground searches, conducted media interviews, and organized round dances within the community. The family have also looked into tips on their own, traveling as far as Edmonton. Eva's since said that she believes her sister is dead and that Misty's disappearance is likely related to her drug use. The RCMP has conducted ground searches in the area where Misty was last seen, and the investigators have reached out to detachments in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia, as the missing woman has ties to all three provinces. Details Misty Faith Potts disappeared from the Alexis Nakoda Sioux First Nation in Alberta in mid-March 2015. She was 37 years old at the time and was last seen at the intersection of Highways 43 and 765, with the assumption being that she'd walked the short distance home. Misty is described as having a medium build, standing at 5'6 or 5'7 and weighing between 120 to 130 pounds. The RCMP states she weighed upwards of 170. She had dark brown eyes, black shoulder-length hair, and a freckled face. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a red jacket, coral-colored jeans, and thick black-rimmed prescription glasses. According to the RCMP, Misty may have traveled to Edmonton or British Columbia's lower mainland. She also has ties in Manitoba. Case Contact Information Anyone with information regarding Misty Potts' case is asked to contact the Mayorthorpe Detachment of the RCMP at either 780-786-2800 or 780-786-2291. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Roberta Ferguson Early Life Roberta Marie Ferguson was born on November 19, 1968, as the youngest of nine children. Part of the Dunvegan Beaver Band, she lived in Grimshaw, Alberta, Canada, over 500 kilometers northwest of Edmonton. Growing up, Roberta had to deal with a hole in her heart which required her to take medication until she was in her teens. Despite this, she kept her spirits high. While a bit on the quiet side, she was known to be a joker and spent her free time drawing, dancing, and reading Archie comics. She was also incredibly strong-willed, a trait her mother passed down to all the children. When Roberta was 14 years old, her mother died, and she spent a year living with her older sisters, Carol and Marilyn in Edmonton. After this, she moved to Surrey, British Columbia to live with her other sister, Beryl. According to the elder Ferguson, Roberta struggled to keep focused in school following their mother's death. Disappearance In the final days of August of 1988, Roberta, her niece and cousin, and a couple of friends decided to go on a camping trip to celebrate the end of a summer work-study program. The group were staying at Sunnyside Campground in Cutlass Lake, about an hour east of Surrey. Having developed a fever, Roberta decided she wanted to go home. At 8 p.m., she told her friend she planned to take a bus back and left the area on foot. 
Around this time, a witness reported seeing a girl matching Roberta's description walking alongside of the highway near the intersection of Beater Mountain and Cutlass Lake Roads. A man, described as average height with blonde or light brown hair and a prominent jaw, pulled over in a red sports car. The witness reported it looked like the girl backed away from the vehicle as if she were scared. That evening, Carol had embarked on a 15-hour road trip from her home in Fairview, Alberta, to Surrey. About two hours in, she learned that Roberta hadn't yet returned home. A few hours later, without any word from her younger sister, Carol told Beryl to report Roberta missing to the RCMP. Since Roberta was an adult and it hadn't been 48 hours, the authorities refused to file a report. Without the support of the RCMP, Roberta's family launched their own search, making posters and scouring the area in and around Cutlass Lake. Investigation When the RCMP finally launched an investigation into Roberta's disappearance, the search yielded many files, but nothing that pointed them in the direction of what happened to the 19-year-old. According to Verrill, a body was found that matched her sister's description but investigators said the descendant, whose identity remains unknown, was Asian. Following the arrest of Robert Pickton in 2002, the Ferguson family was approached to submit DNA to test against human remains found on the serial killer's pig farm. No match was made. Despite confessing to 49 murders and being charged with 26, Pickton was only convicted on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the longest possible sentence under Canada's criminal justice system. In the early 2000s, convicted killer Terry Arnold reported claimed to have been the last person with Roberta. He'd been found guilty of the sexual assault of four girls in Newfoundland and a murder in British Columbia. He was also suspected in the 1981 death of Barbara Stoppel in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and was believed to have been responsible for a murder that had taken place in Alberta just a year prior to Roberta's disappearance. According to report, Arnold took investigators to where he'd allegedly dumped Roberta's body, but it had been moved and the search was called off. After being mistakenly released from police custody, he took his own life. He'd left behind a note in which he recanted all of his previous confessions. Officers with the RCMP detachment in Chilliwack continued to contact Beryl every few years to keep her abreast of the investigation. Details 19-year-old Roberta Marie Ferguson was last seen at Cutlass Lake near Chilliwack, British Columbia on August 24, 1988. An indigenous female, she stood at 5'5 and weighed between 111 to 120 pounds. She had long, curly black and dark hair and brown or black eyes. It's been noted that she had all of her teeth at the time of her disappearance and that there was a scar on her right knee. The last time anyone saw Roberta, she was wearing a black shirt with a navy blue tank top over it, stretchy black pants that had been rolled up to her knees, dirty white running shoes, and octagon-shaped sunglasses. She was also carrying an army green backpack. Case Contact Information Roberta's case is classified as endangered missing, with foul play suspected. Anyone with information about the case is asked to contact the Serious Crime Section of the RCPM's Chilliwag Detachment at 604-792-4611. Tips can also be called in anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Amber Ellis Early Life Very little has been publicly shared about Amber Ellis's childhood and early adulthood. We know she was born in 1988 to her mother, Donna, and that she has a stepfather named Tim Scott. She's also the mother of two children. Despite living what the Ontario Provincial Police 
call a high-risk lifestyle, she regularly kept in contact with them. She'd Snapchat her daughter daily. At the time of her disappearance, Amber was living in Hagersville, Ontario, Canada. However, she had connections to other locations in the region, including Hamilton, Norfolk County, Brantfield, and Cambridge. Disappearance The exact date Amber went missing is unknown. According to family, she'd been out of contact since early February 2021, with news publications reporting that she was last seen toward the middle to end of the month as a resident at 3698 6th Line Inn, Ontario. The rural community is located within six nations of the Grand River Territory. Amber was reported missing by her mother on March 8, 2021. This was largely prompted by her lack of contact with anyone in the family, especially her children. Investigation The OPP's criminal investigation branch took control of the investigation into Amber's disappearance, with assistance from the Haldeman County Detachment, the Six Nations Police Service, and the Branford Police Service. Very little has been revealed regarding the investigation into the case. However, the OPP has shared there's unconfirmed information that Amber may travel to Western Canada. The latest update came in June of 2023, when the OPP, with the help of Six Nations Police Service, launched an evidence-based search of the property where Amber was reportedly last seen. The grounds were searched, as was the area behind the residence, which the Ellis family states has been empty for quite some time. Investigators wouldn't say what they were searching for or what type of evidence, if any, was found. The OPP has interviewed dozens of individuals over the course of the investigation, with little headway made in the case. To help raise awareness and generate more tips, Donna created the Missing Amber Ellis Facebook group. Details Amber Ellis was last seen sometime in February 2021 at a residence in Oswegan, Ontario. She was either 32 or 33 years old at the time and is described as having a thin build, standing at 5'9", and weighing between 120 to 121 pounds. She had straight, long black hair and brown eyes. According to the OPP, Amber is missing some teeth with notable gaps. She also has a scar on her left thigh, the result of a stab wound, and a horizontal mark between her eyebrows. A Chinese symbol is tattooed on the nape of her neck. Case Contact Information Amber's disappearance is currently being investigated as a missing persons case with foul play suspected. The OPP is offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact either the OPP's Criminal Investigation Branch at 188-310-1122 or the dedicated tip line at 1-866-549-2090. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Stella St. Arnold Disappearance on August 17, 1971, Stella St. Arnold, a member of the Little Red River Cree First Nation of Central and Northern Alberta, got into an argument with a family member. Upset over their interaction, she ran into a nearby wooded area on the John Duor Perry Reserve. The authorities were called after Stella didn't return home, and while a search of the area was conducted, no evidence as to her whereabouts was found. Over five decades later, the investigation into her disappearance still remains open. Details 15-year-old Stella St. Arnold was last seen on the John Oral Prairie Reserve in Alberta, Canada on August 17, 1971. 
Located in the northern part of the province, the reserve is approximately 549 kilometers from Edmonton. Stella is described as having a dark complexion and a thin build, standing at 5'3 and weighing 106 pounds. She had long black hair and brown eyes. According to her family, she was last seen wearing either a white and black or a green and white nylon reversible jacket, a short sleeve red blouse, white pants, and black shoes. Case Contact Information Stella's case is currently classified as endangered missing. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Fort Vermilion Detachment of the RCMP at either 780-927-3258 or 780-927-3255. Tips can also be called in anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Yvonne Marlene Abigosis Early Life Yvonne Marlene Abigosis was born on November 23, 1957 to Frank Abigosis and Vidalyn Campbell. The eighth of 14th children, she was raised as part of the Pine Creek First Nation in Manitoba. Growing up, Marlene suffered the generational struggles that came with Canada's residential school system. Operated by the Canadian government and run by the Christian Church, these institutions were intended to assimilate indigenous children into Canadian society by taking them away from their families and forcing them to live in boarding schools, where they were often mistreated, abused, and deprived of their basic human rights. Her father had suffered trauma while in the system, which led him to pass on the violence and abuse he experienced to his children and wife. When Marlene and her siblings were young, they too were taken away from their family and forced to live in residential schools. To cope, many of them turned to alcohol and drugs, including Marlene. According to her older sister, Valerie, half of the siblings eventually died due to alcohol and drug-related health issues. While Valerie was able to get clean through the help of Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, Marlene struggled to cope with what she'd experienced at the residential schools. She found herself living in Vancouver, British Columbia's notorious downtown Eastside, known for its high rates of drug use, homelessness, sex work, and mental illness. Marlene was among those living a high-risk lifestyle in the West Coast city. She worked near the docks, and some of her clients would sometimes take her on trips abroad their boats to Vancouver Island and Washington State. However, no matter what she was dealing with, Marlene always checked in with her family to let them know where she was. Disappearance The date of Marlene's disappearance varies, depending on the source. The Vancouver Police Department claims officers last saw her in the downtown east side on March 27, 1984, while various online sources say she's been missing since January 1st of that same year. Valerie reports that her sister has been missing since December 1983. She says Marlene called her around Christmas to say she was unhappy living in Vancouver and was planning to move to Calgary, Alberta. The route would have taken her past Revelstoke, British Columbia, where Valerie lived, so the elder sister expected to see Marlene at some point. However, she never showed up. Concerned about Marlene's well-being, Valerie made repeated attempts to report her sister as missing to authorities. While she says police were initially interested in the case, she claims that changed the minute she mentioned Marlene had been living in the downtown east side investigation. Despite Valerie's attempts to have Marlene listed as a missing person, it wasn't until May 2002 that an official report was filed. This was around the time Robert Picton was arrested on suspicion of murdering numerous women, a large portion of Vancouver's downtown east side. Following his arrest, investigators launched a search of his pig farm, which turned up the bodies of several women. Despite confessing to 49 murders and being charged with 26, 
Picton was only convicted of six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years, the longest possible sentence under Canada's criminal justice system. Believing Marlene may have been one of the women found on Picton's property, officials visited Valerie's property to collect DNA. However, no matches were made. According to Valerie, the RCMP officer called her a few years ago to report that Marlene's case had been closed without any resolution. Details. Yvonne Marlene Abigosis went by the names Darlene Richards, Marlene Yvonne Abigosis, Clara Ross, and Darlene Campbell. Her sister last heard from her in the winter of 1983 to 84, meaning she would have been 26 years old at the time she disappeared. Marlene is described as indigenous with a ruddy complexion. She had a thin build, standing at 5'6 and weighing between 119 and 120 pounds. She had curly, shoulder-length black hair and brown eyes. Case contact information. Marlene's disappearance is classified as endangered missing, with it suspecting she was a victim of a homicide. Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact the Vancouver Police Department at either 604-717-2530 or 1-877-687-3377. Tips can also be called in anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Mildred Batoshi Disappearance Mildred Batoshi was reportedly last seen on May 26, 1967 at the York Hotel in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Over a month later, on July 7th, one of her brothers contacted authorities in Bonneville to report her missing. At the time, the family was living in Bonneville, which is just over 240 kilometers from Edmonton. According to relatives, Mildred regularly kept in contact with them, so it was odd to have her go so long without checking in. Investigation According to the RCMP, there was a person of interest identified early in the investigation. However, there wasn't enough evidence to lay any charges. The individual, who hasn't been publicly named, has since passed away. In 1970, human remains were located 60 kilometers north of Bonneville, near Tucker Lake. While police believed they belonged to Mildred, pathology and dental examinations were unable to 100% confirm all of this. As such, the case is still classified as a missing persons investigation. Speaking with Lakeland Today in 2021, Mildred's niece, Jacqueline Batoshi, said she had been pushing the local RCMP detachment to reopen her aunt's case. Details. Mildred Batoshi was known to go by the names Margaret and Millie Wanchisco. She was last seen on May 26, 1967, in Edmonton, Alberta, at the York Hotel in the city's downtown. At the time, she was just 23 years of age. Mildred is described as indigenous with a dark complexion. She had a slender build standing between 5'3 and 5'4 and weighing anywhere from 134 to 150 pounds. She had long black and dark hair and brown eyes. Other identifying features include a scar on her left knee, a wart or skin tag on her right cheek near her ear, and a tattoo of the letter H on her left shoulder. She also had missing teeth, which would have been noticeable. While what Mildred was last wearing is currently unknown, she was regularly seen donning black-rimmed glasses. Case Contact Information at present, Mildred's disappearance is currently being investigated as a missing persons case. The RCMP believes it occurred under suspicious circumstances. Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact the Bonneville Detachment of the RCMP at 780-826-3358.
And that, dear listeners, brings the close to these True Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 17. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.